What you are about to hear may include disturbing descriptions of sexual or physical abuse or may contain coarse language. Listener discretion is advised. It may not be of news to you anymore, but in case you don't know, Cynthia and Martin Bevlander have left the group. A number of you may be fearful that you may be the next person to leave, that you'll become disenchanted and leave the group too. Of course, the darkness may be using these fear tactics to make you suffer or to compel you to leave the group. For if you do leave, it is one less person that there is for the light, one less person for the darkness to contend with. Those are the words of John Haynes, founder of Toronto-based spiritual group The Students of Light. That's not his actual voice, but these are words from a partial transcript of a now-lost tape recording, a secret recording made by a former follower of John's. But there is not a single person among us who was compelled to be with us and live with us in Toronto. We came here of our own free will and choice. I can tell you that no one ever came to Toronto with the express view of leaving us. In one way or another, we were all searching to find God. This recording of John was made during a meeting he called to announce that two of his followers, Cynthia Watson and Martin Bevlander, had chosen to leave the Students of Light. When Cynthia heard that John had called this meeting, she convinced a friend in the group to secretly record it. She says the rest of the tape involved John instructing his followers, many of whom had only days before been her close friends, to completely cut her out of their lives. Cynthia wrote several letters to John explaining the reasons for her departure from the Students of Light. Here she is reading from copies of those letters. Dear John, You are a man who opened my heart to God, to a faith that things have their purpose in the universe. For that, I will always be grateful. However of late, I have seen you do things that I have a difficult time respecting. I have seen people turn on those who have chosen to leave the group like jackals. You may deny it, but I have seen it happen many times. This is not Christian or loving behavior. I have seen you begin to control people's lives in such a subtle way that they barely have enough decision-making power to know what they want for dinner. I've seen people become frightened to speak to you about things which bothered them for fear of reprisal, justifiably so. You may say that this is me being taken over by the darkness, but John, someday you are going to realize that there are many people who feel this way. I once trusted and cared for you, John, but with this kind of behavior, the feelings are lost forever. If people see tears in our eyes, it will not be from sadness leaving the group. It will be tears of sadness that something which once seemed so fine has sunk so low. We've spoken to a number of former students of light who, like Cynthia, had at one time thought the group was the answer to everything they'd been seeking in life. When we asked why they first chose to join, we got many similar answers. I think we were all seekers, really wanting to serve, to change, change the world, to make a difference. The main reason I was a seeker, I had a desire from an early age to want to know, to really understand the workings of the universe. You've got people who feel they don't really fit in in the world. They've had difficulties in their life. They're looking for something better. They're looking for a higher calling. In the Students of Light, these seekers found a group of like-minded individuals. They were soon introduced to the technique called aura balancing, a practice meant to help them become more attuned to the spiritual force called the light. 
Many former group members report having intense religious experiences during their first aura balances, experiences which caused them to think they'd finally found what they were seeking. One such follower was a woman named Treva Olson. When she first joined the group, Treva viewed their mission in an optimistic light. To help to bring enlightenment to people, to the planet, to be light bearers. But when Treva looks back now, she sees things quite differently. She now calls the group a cult, and she thinks that its leader, John Hanus, really had one main mission in mind. Subjugation and power, it, it, I think it was just building an empire that gave him a sense of powerfulness and to be able to subjugate, to use that power to subjugate people. In this episode, you'll hear Treva's story of joining and eventually leaving the group. You're listening to Chasing Enlightenment, Episode 2, The Students. Treva grew up in a small village called Edgerton, a couple of hours outside Edmonton, Alberta. And so we weren't um, brought up in a in a church. We we our belief that my parents had was that um, that there is a power that's omnipotent that runs through everything, runs through plants, and you know it's it's throughout the whole earth. So we're all one, basically. That there's no separation. As Treva approached adulthood, she found herself constantly pondering some big questions. Who am I? Why am I here? And how can I best serve? So I got into, you know, I did Zen Buddhism for a while. And so it was different, different insightful meditation things. When I I moved from the village to Edmonton and in between there, I was married, but then uh, the fellow that I married, and he um, was more focused towards uh, accumulation of, of things, and I was more towards inner seeking. So we parted. In 1977, when Treva was in her late 20s, she first came across two members of the Students of Light. At this point, early in the group's history, some members lived and traveled outside Toronto, offering aura balances abroad as a way of piquing interest in the group. They didn't engage in very forceful conversion efforts. Instead, they allowed people to experience an aura balance for themselves and see if they were interested in learning more. A couple of members had recently moved to Edmonton and opened a health food store, which they used as a base to drum up interest in the group. So it was in that time then I went into a health food store in Edmonton. And at this health food store, the the people in there uh, were students of light. And of course, they say, you know, they've got this fellow in Toronto that is quite wise and why don't I come to their home and and have an aura balance? She was desperate to learn more about her spiritual purpose in life and about how she could best serve others. Because there's this urge, urge to want to know. And then somebody says, well, you know, come for an aura balance and and, um, we can help you to get deeper into yourself and have a deeper understanding. Yeah, okay, that's I'm open to that. It's it's the vulnerability of really wanting to belong, of really wanting to uh, know who I am and how can I best serve. And then meeting these lovely people, having the same sort of longing 
and need to belong uh, helps to pull you in. Trevor soon visited the home of the couple she'd met at the health food store. And this whole room was set up um, with crystals and purple cloth and, uh, you know, a chiropractic table that that they used for laying you on to do this aura balance. Though some of the details of this first aura balance are fuzzy, given how long ago it took place, Travis says it put her into a kind of hypnotic or trance-like state, making her feel like she was having an out-of-body experience. What she remembers most vividly is how she felt afterwards. She recalls feeling completely dazed, like something deep inside her had been affected by the balance. She becomes almost lost for words trying to describe it. Um, I became very... um... Uh, well, my home was only about 10 minutes from where this happened, but it took me about an hour to find my way home. It was, it was sort of like a, um, yeah, I, I you, yeah. Uh, Given how strongly the aura balance affected her, Treva was convinced that she had to join the group. When she arrived in Toronto in 1977, she says the Students of Light had around 150 members and had been operating in Toronto's Junction neighborhood for several years. Their vegetarian restaurant and health food store had opened, and more group businesses were soon to follow. Treva threw herself into her new life in the group. She moved into a house they owned, the Students of Light House, where the group conducted hours-long meditation and aura balance sessions several times each week. Treva spent long, up to 14-hour days working at the vegetarian restaurant. The restaurant's stated mission was to bring a healthful, holistic diet to the group's community. But Travis says it was also meant to do more than this. While working there, group members would mentally repeat mantras and concentrate on keeping the light in their hearts so that they could transmit it to all of their customers. At the time, Treva felt she was devoting her life to a worthy cause. She now sees things much differently. For one thing, she now thinks that the long hours working at the restaurant, the long stretches of silent meditation, the never-ending repetition of mantras, and the constant focus on keeping the light in her heart were really tactics to keep her from thinking critically or questioning the real purpose behind the group and John's leadership. You were kept busy. We worked in the health food store. We worked in the uh, restaurant. And if we weren't working there... When we were in our home, in our spaces, there was all kinds of practices that were fucking crazy, man. She says, I can't believe it. You know, like rubbing down your entire bathroom with a toothbrush and all the time chanting something, some words or something. And um, because your your mind was, was what was going to destroy you. You could not use your mind. Treva says she was told her mind had to be kept occupied at all times, lest thinking too much lead her astray from the group's mission. She now sees this as a ploy to keep her in place as a brainwashed follower. And then, of course, we were told not to use our minds, that our minds were destructive. You had to stay in sort of in in an ethereal kind of world. Boy, I tell you, looking back, you wonder, Frig, how did you ever get duped on this bullshit? Group members were instructed to pray for protection from dark spiritual forces anytime they went outdoors, and to flush their hair and nail clippings down the toilet so that these dark forces couldn't find them and use them for nefarious purposes. They were also told to cut off relationships with people outside the group, and to ask John's permission anytime they wanted to leave Toronto. And they were told to take on new names for themselves. I, but you know, we were to be social. We were not to make eye contact with other people, really. Because 
you know, all the bullshit they could tell you about that. Um, I, I remember feeling quite lost for a while. They change your name. You know, you don't keep your name because then that's something that ungrounds you as well. You have no identity. You are identifying with someone else. Trevor now sees such practices as ways of forcing members to become dependent on John and the group while being cut off from the world outside. If Trevor's right that John's real goal was mind control, then to what end exactly? What was he trying to achieve? For one thing, Trevor thinks John deeply enjoyed subjugating people to his will, that he developed a god complex and enjoyed lording his power over others. Trevor also thinks John had a financial motive. She says group members were instructed to funnel money into the group, both wages they made while working in group-owned businesses and savings they had from their lives before the group. Now, it's not as if John lived a life of luxury, but the group used funds from members to invest in properties in the junction, moving group members into apartments there. This allowed John to keep as many members as he could under his thumb, as well as to pay for his own modest living expenses. Trevor remained with the Students of Light for three years, until 1980, when events were set in motion that led to her leaving. It all started when Trevor's brother and his wife visited Toronto. Trevor's sister-in-law noticed some alarming changes in her. She noticed that personality change. I was unkempt. I was, um, I had crystals that I used, and, and they took me out for dinner, and I pendled the food, and, you know, it's just stuff, and she's like, whoa, weird. And um, and then they come out again, uh, uh, I don't know if it was about a half year or a year later, and looking at me, they could see that I was 10,000 miles away from my body. There was seriously nobody home. Soon after this, Treva told her sister during a phone call that she'd recently burned all her photographs of family members in order to leave behind what she now called her Earth family and become more fully united with her spiritual family and the group. Alarmed, Treva's family got a hold of Ted Patrick, an American man famous for helping people rescue their family members from cults. And he said, well, you, you, have, to, you have to kidnap her, you have to get her out of there. Ted Patrick is a controversial figure. He pioneered the practice of deprogramming, which is meant to reverse the brainwashing and mind control undergone by cult members. He once described this practice in an interview on KPBS-TV. Uh, I had to find some way of getting the person out of this uh, hypnotic state of mind, uh, mind control. And uh, that's when I came up with um, deprogramming. That was the birth of deprogramming. With the support of their families, Ted Patrick would have alleged cult members kidnapped and detained against their wills, often for days at a time. Deprogramming then involved intense, relentless questioning of the beliefs with which they'd supposedly been indoctrinated. This was meant to force them to think critically about all the lies they'd been fed. And uh, I asked them simple question that requires a yes or no answer. And when they realized they can't answer those questions, they got to start thinking. And the more they think, uh, the open their minds gets. When they start thinking, that's when their mind is going to snap back into consciousness. Snapping is the culmination of a person's deprogramming. It's the breaking point where a cult member is supposed to abruptly emerge from a brainwashed state with a restored ability to think freely. Treva's family concocted a plan to lure her back to Alberta, where they hoped to receive Ted Patrick's deprogramming services. 
They coaxed her back with the promise that she could withdraw $15,000 in savings there. She planned to bring this money back to the Students of Light, so John Hainis gave her permission to take the trip home. But her family was waiting for her, determined to keep her from returning to Toronto. And my entire family met me at the airport with a motorhome. And, um, you know, I still get pretty emotional when I think about that, because that's where the true love is. Treva's family took her to her parents' home in Edgerton and refused to allow her to leave. But any time they turned their backs, Treva would run to a nearby hotel to use a phone, desperately trying to call the Students of Light for help. She eventually got a hold of the member in Edmonton who had first introduced her to the group several years earlier. And he came down in his van, and before he could even get out of the van, my brother went out and kicked his van and told him to get the hell out of here. And then they were worried um, that, uh, because I, you know, I mean, my had a one-track mind, and that was to get back to them. So they moved me out to my other brother's farm just outside of Edgerton. After this incident, the Students of Light called the police and accused Treva's family of kidnapping and forcibly confining her. And um, we were out in the garden and the RCMP showed up and my brother went over and talked to them and they said, well, we've been called and told that you uh, have kidnapped your sister and she's an adult and so we want to talk to her. So he came over to me first and he said if you tell them that you've been kidnapped your dad and I are going to go to prison and so think about that and so I went when I went to talk to them I said I can't I can't say anything I can't I don't can't say anything so um, when they left um, my family again moved me to my sister's ranch down uh, south there about an hour and a bit, and I was kept locked in a machine shed in a motorhome, in the motorhome, until they could get Ted Patrick up there. At first, Ted sent a team of two people to work on Trevor's deprogramming on his behalf. They did so for about a week, making slow progress. Finally, after Trevor's brother called many times, insisting that he come himself, Ted came in person. During Trevor's deprogramming, Ted demanded that she explain how, in her three years with the Students of Light, She'd done any work that really contributed to the good of humanity. Remember, this was one of the main reasons Treva had originally joined. Yet, with this questioning, Treva realized that little of her day-to-day life in the group was really spent doing anything of the sort. Instead, she'd been totally preoccupied with the group's activities, like aura balances, long silent meditations, and constant repetition of mantras. Treva says that this realization caused her to snap out of her brainwashing. And so Ted came... And uh, within three days of being with Ted, I did what they call snapping and um, came out of the room where I was being deprogrammed. And my mom was there and she said, oh my God, you're you're back because you don't have that 10,000 mile look anymore. You're actually back in your body. Anyway, um, Ted went back to the States, and um, about a week later, I followed with this couple um, to go down for rehab. 
Treva spent about a month at Ted's Rehab Center in California, then returned to her family in Alberta. She never again spoke to the Students of Light, since the group had a policy of cutting off contact with people who left. Now, it's important for us to note that many people view Ted Patrick's brand of deprogramming as unethical. In fact, Ted has been arrested and jailed numerous times on charges of kidnapping and unlawful detention, and he's had millions of dollars in lawsuits brought against him by those he's deprogrammed. In 1989, CBS's 48 Hours covered a deprogramming of a teenage boy named Aaron by anti-cult activist Rick Allen Ross. Aside from the legal and moral debate, deprogramming is a gut-wrenching experience, a non-stop force-beating of arguments and emotions in which a family tries to win back a loved one. Though Ted Patrick wasn't involved in this deprogramming, watching it gives a sense of how volatile things can become in these situations. After 20 minutes of arguing about the church, Aaron gets fed up. Leave me alone! Why do I have to stay here? I don't! I'm here, that's why you're sitting in here. Sit down. Leave me alone, Aaron. I'm your brother. Sit down. Oh, yes, you gotta sit and talk about What are you gonna call me tomorrow, huh? Aaron, you don't lie about me tomorrow? No. Aaron, listen, No, I don't want to sit down. I don't want to be a part of this anymore. Listen, listen to me. Just listen for one second. I watched you change. Oh, yeah, the I did. The church I watched you change. In the video, adults assisting with the deprogramming can be seen forcibly restraining Aaron as he repeatedly tries to leave the room, with things getting more and more heated. Aaron, just sit here. Aaron, Aaron I don't want to be part of you guys anymore. I did not agree to this. Aaron, go! Aaron, Aaron, you're Aaron, 14 years old and you're a minor and your mother... That's I don't want to talk! That's the problem! Why? Because you got to lie about me nobody wants to I'm your brother! Deprogramming of this sort is much less common today than it was in the 70s and 80s, and many experts now condemn the practice. Here's Lauren Dawson, sociologist and scholar of new religious movements. The problem is it almost always involves, you know, unlawfully confining someone. So right off the bat, I mean, if you have to virtually imprison someone to do something, you're, you're engaged in coercion now, so two wrongs don't make a right. I mean, in fact, that's the great irony is the deprogrammers actually physically imprison people in motel rooms or bedrooms or in basements of houses, physically not allowing them to leave when no new religious movement has ever been convicted of a similar action. Then here's the more important thing. A really high percentage of deprogramming cases that we know of fail. It's just not very successful. Now, this picture is complicated by the many people who continue to praise deprogrammers like Ted Patrick for their work. This includes many of the thousands that Ted has personally deprogrammed, including Treva herself. In her view, her family's willingness to subject her to the difficult deprogramming process came from a place of deep love, one that drove them to take necessary, if drastic, measures. Yeah, and and there there is there was kickback about that too. You know, what about your own free will? And and um, why should you be held against your will? Well, you have no will. You have zero will. You've pitched it all up to some other higher authority. You have no free will. And when you, when, if I wasn't taken by my family that, that 
truly, really love me and given the opportunity to think again for myself, where would I be? Treva now says that the Students of Light were a cult. But it's worth noting that while Treva's glad to have left the group behind, she stops short of saying that her entire experience was bad. Treva, tell us your story. You were a member of the Students of Light. In 1993, more than a decade after leaving the group, Treva appeared on a CBC Newsworld program that interviewed various people about cults. She reflected on how close-knit the group was and on how she was able to forge deep bonds with other like-minded group members. I guess being a part of a cult was being a part of a very, very close family. And we all shared the same ideals. We um, all worked together and we traveled in our recruiting together. It was, it was like leaving a large family when I left. And when I left the cult, I really missed the family for quite a while. Earlier, I couldn't help noticing that you, that you spoke almost nostalgically about your years, almost nostalgically about your years with the Students of Light. Again, obviously acknowledging that they filled a void in your life. Yeah. Do you miss that non-threatening aspect of, of the cult? I can honestly say that there was a time that I did, and, and that time was maybe the first two years after I had left. And decision-making and, and just making my way in life and in a fishbowl effect was very difficult. But now I have found, um, in the community that I live in, a very strong um, community with the people that I, that I have made friends with, and I, I, don't, I don't miss that uh, as I had missed it at one time. As we mentioned at the top of this episode, the stories of why many people first joined the Students of Light have a lot in common. Many describe deep spiritual unrest and a longing to better serve humanity. So it's unsurprising that Treva found the group full of like-minded people to quickly bond with. In fact, academic research shows that relationships and bonds like these are among the most important reasons people join small religious groups like the Students of Light. Here's sociologist Lauren Dawson again. Scholars realized that when they went out and talked to people about why you're joining these groups, the very first thing people said was, oh, when I met the people, they just seemed so happy and so engaged and such a sense of purpose in their lives. I envied them. I wanted to be that. I wanted to be like them, especially I think for students of life being a smaller, tighter, more cohesive group, not a national group or an international group. Um, probably the, the forces at work to bond people to the group would have been a lot stronger. It's very much more this family culture, right? And how hard, you know, how hard it is to separate from a family. Now, once such strong bonds have been formed, they also make it easier for group leaders to ensure that followers remain cut off from the world outside the group. The key is to break ties with the outside world because they could draw the person away in terms of interests, attention, loyalties, things of that nature. This separation from the outside world is intensified when group leaders implement strict routines and long working hours, practices that Trevor says went on inside the Students of Light. Such intensive routines make it difficult for group members to maintain contact with those outside, forcing them to interact solely with fellow group members. In Professor Dawson's view, these kinds of intense bonds between group members generate the social pressures that result in extreme conformity to a group's beliefs and practices. He argues that these social pressures aren't really different in kind from what one might experience in day-to-day life. I, I don't think in kind any different. It's just this, and it is more intense because they are able to uh, 
they, you know, they, most groups know enough to take a person uh, away to like a farm or a camp or a location somewhere where you're breaking their conventional ties and interactions. You're limiting the information that's coming to them. And then you're giving them a lot of attention. We are very much prone and subject to group pressures, right? And if we're in a room with a group of people that intensely believe in something, statistically, almost all of us will have a tendency to fall in line and accept those beliefs, right? We have a strong desire to please, to conform, to get along, to not cause trouble. In fact, Professor Dawson rejects the idea that cults engage in some special kind of mind control or brainwashing. It's always this balance of very obvious social and psychological factors bringing these groups together, nothing exotic, they're just more intense because of the nature of the beliefs and the, the, the focus of the groups. If Treva's descriptions of life in the group are accurate, it's not hard to see how these kinds of intense social pressures would have operated within the Students of Light. After her deprogramming, Treva felt she needed to find a way to help others who had gone through experiences like hers. So she started a society aimed at educating people about cults. And I started Alberta Cult Education Society and with other people that had lost people in a cult. And, and uh, did public speaking throughout Alberta and Saskatchewan. Met a lot of fantastic people that really helped me along that healing journey. This work eventually tapered off, but Treva's efforts to serve others haven't slowed down much since then. She's since worked with Amnesty International, She's engaged in environmental advocacy, fighting for waste reduction and the preservation of small, sustainable farms. She's founded a hospice society, volunteered at a prison for Indigenous men, and taught yoga. Given everything Treva's done since leaving the Students of Light, we asked her if she's found all the things she was seeking in life, the things that originally led her to join the group. Yes. Yes, I have. And I've, I found it through relationship with myself a love of myself, and a relationship with the other. Treva now says that through all the work she's done in her community, she's realized that the Students of Light were really offering the opposite of what she'd been seeking. Because there, you isolate yourself from the community and from any relationship outside of the, the elite. But we're all... We're all the elite. We're all one. We're all wishing for the best for the planet and for one another, but not, not in the way that they controlled the environment. What one does affects the other, and so you, you support the other, and the other supports you. It's a holistic relationship. Chasing Enlightenment was written and narrated by Daniel Monroe. Audio production and editing by Carolyn Smiley. Additional research and voiceovers by Robert Monroe. Artwork and web design by Megan Hilario. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. You can find more information about the show and ways to support us at ChasingEnlightenment.net. Contact us at chasingenlightenment at gmail.com. For mental health support in Canada, visit wellnesstogether.ca or text 686868 for immediate help. Those seeking to leave abusive relationships
can visit endingviolencecanada.org.